Now, if you are Venezuela, Saudi Arabia or BP, the year has not started well. Something extraordinary has been happening to the oil price. Oil prices have collapsed. The International Energy Agency says we're drowning in crude, which raises the question, how can those in the business community keep their heads above water? Mr. Gage, you are now putting another billion dollars of your own money uh, into green innovation. Well, the returns will come uh, partly through the benefits to society, and so... Uh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Today, we're here to announce America's Clean Power Plan, a plan two years in the making, and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. But I am convinced that no challenge pose a greater threat to our future. Hello, I'm Pete Ogden, Senior Fellow at the Energy Policy Institute, and here to host a special edition of the Off the Charts Energy Podcast. Today, we are pleased to welcome to the University of Chicago, Connie Hedegaard, the former EU Commissioner for Climate Change. I was fortunate to see Connie work firsthand when I was with the White House and State Department in the run-up to the Copenhagen Climate Conference and know from personal experience the influential role she played there and has continued to play since. Connie and I sat down to talk about the path to the Paris climate deal, what's needed going forward, and much more as part of a live epic event and live recording of Off the Charts. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, you know, we've talked a lot, heard a lot lately about Paris and what happened, but Sam mentioned an important part of your biography, which is that you were really at the center of uh, the climate conference that was really in many ways the precursor or a pivotal moment uh, on the way to Paris, which was what happened in Copenhagen in 2009. And, you know, I thought just to, for, the, to, for the sake of our audience, I think we don't talk a lot about anymore about what what the experience of Copenhagen was like, what we learned, right? Maybe it's, maybe to some extent you laugh, but on the other hand, do you think that in some ways, uh, looking back post-Paris, that you have, uh, that your views of, Cop of that experience have changed, been informed, uh, or not particularly? No, I'm, I'm laughing because <laughs> obviously, uh, what we managed to do actually up to Copenhagen was to, for the first time, mobilize all governments and also at heads of states level, to say this is not a topic that belongs only with environment ministers and climate responsible ministers. We need to get to the top of governments. They need to understand why we must address climate change. So that was good. But it's also clear that there was this huge expectation and so many countries, that has been forgotten afterwards. It's as if it was only the Danes and maybe the Europeans who thought that a deal would be possible. But so many came to Copenhagen back in 2019. Now is the time. Mm -hmm. Now we must act. And then it turned out not enough countries had enough to bring to the table. Among them, your own country, mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say, and China. And I think that that is where the big difference to what then, what we did over the years, six years from 2009 to Paris 2015, that was to take care that, okay, well in advance of Paris, all countries must show what am I really going to commit to, so that we would not end up at another uh, international conference and then parties would 
talk and uh, seemingly be ready, and then when they came there, they could not really give in. I mean, for many years we played this game, as I see it as a European, mm -hmm. where the Americans said, for good reasons also with your political situation in Congress, we will not move as long as the Chinese are not moving their position. And on the other hand, the Chinese said, we're not going to move until the Americans have moved. So we had this, what I call the after you, sir, game. Mm -hmm. And that sort of holds everybody sort of in, in, in this sort of uh, situation for, for a very long time. So I think that the real good new thing that happened was mm -hmm. when two years ago, three years ago, the Obama administration really changed its priorities and said, now I want to do this. Now you were, have been in the White House. When, when John Podesta came into the White House, you could almost physically feel that now from the top, it was sort of set, we need to do this better. And, and the, the very big thing we had there, and, and maybe the last really big battle between Europe and US on this, the last battle so far, <laughs> uh, was in uh, Durban, the climate conference back in 2011. Because I recall there where in Europe we said, okay, we must give it a new try. We must have a global framework around these things. We have global economies, global competition, global markets, global challenges. We must have a global framework around climate change. We must give it a new try two years after Copenhagen. And the Americans at that time said, yeah, the deadline should be 2017. 2017, we could not be sure, we could be rather sure that at least Obama would, would not be in office. So mm -hmm. we wanted to have that deadline to be 2015. And the big thing that happened in Durban was that we together achieved all countries, also the developing big economies, would have to be part of a future agreement. That was basically what brought Copenhagen down. That China, India, others said, we are developing countries. It's not for us. Uh, that was the old Kyoto set off, where we said in the 21st century, you, China, India, Brazil, South Africa, you also have to be part of it. Mm -hmm. So, sorry for this long answer, mm -hmm. but just to say what, what has been sort of the nightmare, you could say, of all these uh, climate negotiations is that it has been a proxy in a way for a much bigger battle taking the world from the old north-south paradigm of the 20th century, from the 1970s and onwards, to a new 21st paradigm of mutual interdependency. And, and that is what is reflected in the Paris Agreement. And that's why I think that it was a real step being taken. But whether it is more than that, that will obviously depend a lot on implementation. And it's not the time for anybody in the US to start threatening or speaking about renegotiating this thing. I just tell you, if, if you've been close to this process, I mean, it's, it's almost ridiculously absurd just to, to hint that, oh, we could renegotiate it. I hope that will never be the case, but just to talk about it in that way is actually damaging for the reputation of the United States. To go back to, uh, an point you made that I think is, is quite accurate, the, uh, about the, the need uh, to have all of the major economies developed and developed being together as part of the agreement. That had been uh, one of the, I think, going in conditions for the Obama administration. 
uh, and we weren't able to completely get all the way there uh, in Copenhagen. But then five years later, whether or not in Paris we got all the way there, or close to there, I, uh, I, I, I love your thoughts on that. But what, what happened? I mean, what was it then that, that's, that enabled, that interested China in stepping up, uh, India stepping up? And, and, uh, and were there things that, that we did to help as, as the US and Europe, were there things we did to help move that along? Or is that something that had to happen internally and we just sort of needed to wait for the stars to align and then seize that opportunity? Yeah. I think that two things happen. It, it means a lot when the American leadership says loud and clear, we're going to do this. That changes the di dynamic. It, it simply does. And also when you actually start doing it, and of, of course the whole fracking thing and the energy situation in, U in uh, the US and all this, that, that, that has played a role. But I think that what matters most in, in that context is then that President Obama gave it high priority in the G2 talks, in, in the deliberations with China. Because that is one area where I would say Europe has had numerous meetings and conversations and what have we over the years with China. But that in itself could not make China sort of change. Mm -hmm. That required that the US came into this equation. I think that those G2 meetings and the very good relationship being built over the years between the Chinese team and the US team, that was quite instrumental. Uh, I, I think that it helped there that when we in Europe then adopted our 2030 targets one month ahead of the, uh, a G2 meeting between President Xi Jinping and President Obama, that you could see that, okay, Europe is actually moving ahead with that, coming up with their 2030 targets. And then for the first time, we saw the two leaders coming out at their level saying, we're going to do this. China announced when they're going to peak, and you announced the, the, the targets for 2025. Then I also do think that it means something. I always thought that China is not going to subscribe to anything internationally until they are ready until they are ready also to take the markets. And that is also very much what happened between 2009 and 2015, that due to their domestic situation, the situation with pollution getting worse, I mean, they were forced also internally for domestic political reasons to address these kind of, of issues in a much more radical way. And they were starting to do it. And they saw, for instance, with solar, how they could develop a new sector and take the markets very fast, so it was not as dangerous to go out and announce what you're going to do. And let's also be frank, what the Chinese have announced, that they can peak their emissions by 2030. I mean, nobody believes that is uh, very uh, ambitious in, in no mean, I mean, in no way it's ambitious. And they can easily do that. Uh, they can probably peak already in 2022, 2025. Some would say that they have already peaked maybe their emissions. But the politics of this was that they announced it at the global stage, and they did not do that until they were certain that they could deliver and would not be perceived internally as if the rest of the world told them what to do. Mm -hmm. So there was evolution on both the United States and Chinese sides, sort of politically on these issues. 
what, what, plus with what happened with climate in, in yeah. the real physical world. Yeah. I mean, more and more people started to realize that this is not a distant yeah. thing coming, it's actually here. And how about in Europe? I mean, is, what, what have you seen as the general development? I mean, we know that traditionally Europe has, um, you know, uh, not, it's, it's not been a politic, it's not been as politically divisive an issue as it is here, but on the other hand is, uh, uh, I think that's sometimes easy to say, but when you are the commissioner for the entire EU and suddenly the EU, it does not seem so monolithic, I imagine. Um, what is your sense uh, in general about in helping people here to better understand you know, how do Europeans think about these challenges? Obviously, they welcome the successes, but uh, how, how does that issue play out and how has it evolved since Copenhagen? I think that there is one important difference uh, between, I mean, generally speaking, European mm -hmm. citizens' view on climate change and American citizens. In Europe, it is typically, in most of the member states in Europe, most of the states, it's not as polarized. It's not an ideological question of whether there is climate change or not. Mm -hmm. There is sort of a more profound acceptance. Climate change is there. We have a responsibility as a rich region in the world to do something about it. So the political discussion will be more around what exactly to do? I mean, what, what would be the policy tools? Is it better to do this or that? Should we be this fast or that fast? What are our competitors on, on other continents? Are they doing their fair share? I mean, that kind of discussion. But there is not this profound discussion. I mean, if you have the 28 European heads of states and, and prime ministers at a European Council discussing climate change, they would not sort of have, you know, 12 saying climate change is a hoax, it doesn't exist. It, it, it simply would not, it, that's not the way the discussion is. Can I tell you one interesting thing, we, with, with one exception maybe, uh, we have still Poland, Poland, um, close to 40 million people. It's a coal-based state, they have their own coal. They have, from the Cold War, the experience of being dependent on others when it comes to, you know, Russia and the Soviet Union and so, so on and so forth. So to have their own homegrown coal, that is what, that's a strategic priority for them. So they have always been the most reluctant country when it came to European climate policies, climate targets, renewables targets, energy efficiency targets. Um, until two years ago, the Prime Minister of Poland was Donald Tusk, who is now uh, sort of the president of all the European heads of states at the European level. And two weeks ago, the Danish government, the Danish Prime Minister, took Donald Tusk to Greenland to see the melting of the ice cap with his own eyes, and a lot of scientists were there briefing him. And he was interviewed on, on TV, you know, and then he said, only a fool does not admit uh, that he was mistaken if he were mistaken. I'm not a fool. I think it's fair to say that climate change is a reality. And that was a big thing for him to say. But you know what happened while they filmed this? A huge chunk of ice just <laughs> dropped down and it splashed all over, splashed all over. It was uh, fascinating pictures. Yeah. But that was sort of the, 
the man from the only country in Europe where you would have had a leader who said climate change is not there, he said, I'm not a fool, I, I've been mistaken. Now, he has also been replaced by a new prime minister who still says that there's not such a problem like climate change. <laughs> hmm. But it's just to say that it's a rare thing in yeah. Europe. Normally, there would be acceptance. It is happening. And people would, the citizens, if you ask them, 70, 80% would admit, with some differences in different countries, but they would say, of course, there is such a thing like uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. we have, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, there is, it, it, if you poll too in the United States, it's not as it, the, the, the division in terms of whether or not you believe climate change is real or not real is not nearly as stark among the general population as it is among elected officials, where you get, um, you, you, have, you have a much larger number of people who sort of deny the, the science of climate change. But it polls among the lists of concerns low. Yeah. Um, so even those who want to, you know, who are concerned about it, they, it, it falls after a whole slew of other things. And um, do you, why do you think it is then? I mean, is, it, is that different in Europe? Do people, no. people or, or what is it then that allows them to be politically motivated in a way that the Americans aren't, even those who, even when you have the majority, you have sort of on paper the numbers. No, you know, I've sometimes been discussing this with, with Todd Stern, yeah. who would sometimes say, yeah, but it's difficult because our, the Americans do not like taxes, or they do not like this and that. And I just said, OK, the, the Europeans do not exactly love taxes. And if you polled like that, what is most important? That you have a job, mm -hmm. uh, that your country is exiting the economic crisis, blah, 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 blah. Of course, climate would, during mm -hmm. a historic economic crisis, it would come quite long down the list. Mm -hmm. Of course it would. But there I just think that there is this that there is this um, tendency among European leaders to say, as we, they're the leaders would accept that climate change is happening. And, and the self-perception in Europe would be, we have a moral responsibility actually to do something about it. So there the leaders would typically say, this is not whether we would do it or not, we, we could, you know, lower this energy tax, or could we sort of soften this, this target? But it would not be, can we, can we forget about this until five or 10 years from now when we have ha handled the economic crisis? What we did in the European Commission then was also to say, that the, the thing is, how do you make climate and the green transition, low carbon transition, and jobs, and sound economics and growth go hand in hand. That is what, what we have to do. And there it helped, of course, a lot when we could try to sort of show black on white that some of the member states in Europe who had done most in this field had also a lot of exports increase in this area, a lot of jobs created. Germany today has more jobs in the renewable sector than they have in the coal sector. They used to be a coal nation. Uh, my country, Denmark, it's around 11% of our whole uh, export that is now green technologies. 30 years ago, we had absolutely nothing, not a wind turbine, nothing. It has come through sort of political priorities, feed-in tariffs, creating a framework that we are now sort of uh, phasing out, but basically created new strongholds in our industry. So that has been, of course, imperative to be able to show to people that this also makes sense economically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And then I think that's, that actually sets us up sort of well in how I was trying to create a little bit of a chronology to our discussion here. It brings us sort of to, to Paris, really, um, and the shifting attitudes uh, in China, United States, some sort of intensification of desire to get an outcome after Copenhagen in Paris. Um, and I, I've, I've always sort of wanted to ask you this. I mean, you, you as the person who was, one of the peculiarities of the international climate uh, uh, diplomatic circus. for circus <laughs> is that the circus moves to a new country every year, which is a strange thing because on, it, it, it introduces a new host. You have a new country that has two different roles all of a sudden. One is to negotiate its own national interest, and the other is to act as a neutral arbiter to try to drive consensus. And every so often, every five, 10 years, you end up with sort of a very big conference where all the hardest issues that, that were passed on from the previous ones eventually hit. And Copenhagen was one of those, and Paris, because of the timeline that was established, uh, was another one. You were the you actually by the time of Copenhagen, if I'm not mistaken, had sort of taken off your your Denmark hat and were really trying to figure out how to diplomatically wrangle this uh, this this uh, collection of of countries into an outcome. So it, I think it would be fa you know fascinating to, when you with all of that knowledge, which I think you probably have more than any other person in the world. When you saw what happened in Paris, what, it, what was it that struck you about how the French approached it? Uh, or what did you feel? At what points in the conference did you start to think this might work or this, this wouldn't work? Or, or you know, what does it look like to somebody when they see, you know, you're the only person who'd put on a climate conference where 100 plus world leaders came. Um, what, how did you feel as a, as, a, as a kind of diplomatic institutional moment? <laughs> Paris operated, and then, and, then, uh, and then we can talk a little bit about the substance of it. No, I think the, Paris, uh, the French did, did excellent in the way they, they handled everything. And they learned from Copenhagen mm. that yes, you need leaders in there, but uh, one thing that you could learn from Copenhagen was not to bring the leaders, the heads of states, in at the end of the conference. Mm. because. These things are so complex. Countries will formulate their mandates for negotiation way before you know, they, they literally leave home and go to the conference. So negotiators, technic uh, experts first the first week and then ministers, portfolio ministers the other week, they have this mandate. So if they know that their heads of state is going to arrive on Wednesday or Thursday or whatever in week two, would the negotiator from Tuvalu, would he then uh, change, would he dare to change his position from what is in his mandate? And I think that was one of the evil dynamics of Copenhagen. I mentioned before as a positive thing that it was brought to the attention of leaders, which was important. But it was also clear that it was an art car. We, we tried to have established what in these international talks will be called friends of the chair group. You cannot negotiate with 30,000 people in the room. You can also not negotiate in the plenary with 2,000 people in the room. You need to have a room like, more like this size, you know, with 100 people in the room. Uh, so it was sort of art that 
it was not possible to get a green light from big countries to establish such a Friends of the Chair group. And, and that is due to many things, but one of the things would be that the Chinese delegation internally was in disorder. They had two different lines. Normally we might not think that that would be possible, but it was very clear they had their own sort of discussions internally. And who should then take the lead when their prime minister would be arriving very soon? And, and you know, that created a very, very bad dynamic. So the good advice to the French, of course, was find a way still to make uh, heads of states interested in this conference, but don't ask them to come in very late because that takes the, the air out of the negotiations somehow. And also it's clear that there are cultural differences. So whereas Obama and Merkel, they would love to go into a room and start to get their hands into some text or whatever. That is not how you negotiate as an Indian prime minister or a Chinese prime minister. Mm -hmm. So the French invited the leaders at the start of the conference to send the signal to their negotiators and the ministers, now you have to agree, we expect you to agree, and then they left, and then the technical experts did their work. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the other side of it is also that with all the respect that the Paris outcome deserves, and it's very, very important, and it is the maximum of what the world could agree to in December 2015, it's also clear that it is not as ambitious as we, we, what, what was tried in, in Copenhagen. In what sense? In, in, in the sense that what the parties pledged to do is very much what the parties sort of say they will do, but the pledges are not binding. And that is the big difference to, to Copenhagen. Not that, as some would sometimes portray it, as if anybody saw that in Copenhagen you could force people to do things that they did, do not want to do. Of course, you cannot do that in international diplomacy. But there is a difference. Say now that you get a president elected in the United States who would not accept Paris what are the guarantees that came out of Paris? And, and, and of course you could say that also for Kyoto and all the things, but, but I think that it was more like a, a top-down uh, approach that would do what is needed according to the science in Copenhagen. And then when that was not possible, then we tried and think you played quite a role in that. Say, so, okay, then we must have something which is not a total bottom-up. It has to be some kind of hybrid uh, where there are some binding elements, and then we must see how far can we get the, the binding elements, the binding setup. Uh, and, and, and thus we ended up with this hybrid thing, which mm -hmm. I, I think in, I mean, it, it can work, but we do not know yet whether it works. It is very much up to nations now to actually deliver. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we did an, uh, another thing. We, we hoped that when we knew all the countries' contributions well in advance of Paris, and that was originally a, a European idea, mm -hmm. but we had one more sort of thing to that idea that was then, well in advance of Paris, we should see, does all these pledges add up to a credible scenario where the world would stay below the two degrees that was adopted in, in Copenhagen. And if the answer would be no, this is not enough, 
then there should be sort of a round where we say, okay, key countries, now when you know what your competitors are planning to do, and they are playing ball, could you add on a bit more to your target, to your target, to your target? As you know, that was not agreed. Uh, some countries said, no, we are doing what we do, and we do not want to have that up for any kind of discussion, but that will now be up for discussion in 2018 when there will be the first review. Mm -hmm. So that's what, uh, so between, that's clearly, I think you've, you've laid down one really clear marker, which is in 2018, countries all agreed to a collective assessment of whether or not what they put forth was sufficient and to the degree that they're off course, you know, naming specifically what that delta is, which is they did not want to do going in, right? Everyone put one offer on the table and that was the final offer. Are there other things in the near term? I mean, you know, while that, probably that's the first major kind, that's gonna set, up, set us up for the next one of these big, big conferences. But for, you know, this year in December, in November actually, the, the conferences here overlaps with the U.S. elections. So oh. day two of the elections, we will find out who our next president of the, wow. uh, of the negotiations. Um, it's actually, often these negotiations happen in November. I don't think, it's not the first time. I've been nope. trying to find out how many times, see if we can do some, figure out what the, what the, whether there's some odds we can make, what, what happens when the elections overlap with the climate talks. So it does happen. Um, I think it happened in 2000 and there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, because we were uncertain about who won the election. Uh, but in any case, there, there, is, a made, there is a climate conference uh, in, in, in Morocco this year. We'll, there'll be other ones uh, in, in subsequent years. What are the other kind of major points where you're going to start to say, this is working or it's not working? I think that the decisive factor for many developing countries, that would be whether the developed countries deliver the finance pledged mm -hmm. in, in the Paris Agreement. I mean, now we've been talking a lot about what we do here and in the U.S. and uh, in the U.S. and in Europe mm -hmm. and in China. If you're a developing country, what really matters is can you jump a generation of technology or two, yes or no? And, and that is, of course, a smart way from, from a, seen from a global perspective. Skip old technologies, go straight to the best technologies. And if that comes with an additional cost, say, of 10 or 20%, that is where global climate financing comes in. I think one of the most ideological battles we have seen in many years in the climate talks would be this, where a number of developing countries would insist that public money, public climate financing was better than private money. Where I would argue, and Europe would argue, and the US would argue, well, if you are in a Tanzanian village and you need to have access to electricity, if you're waiting for this only to happen through ODA, development assistance, then you will have to wait for a very long time. What really can get things going is if private investors to a larger degree will go into developing markets. And, and that is, I think, that is the litmus test now. Will that really happen with n n novel ways of doing things in the export credits institutions, in multilateral banks, in the World Bank, in, in many different ways, uh, European Investment Bank, you have mm -hmm. US systems, uh, the OPIC, and mm -hmm. you know, so. if, if we go in there and use the money intelligently, 
to attract more private investments in developing countries. That is probably what would bring the fastest changes uh, and, and where developing countries really could see, oh, there's also something in it for me. I think that is really the litmus test. Mm -hmm. And I think if we come to 2018 and the developing countries would say, yeah, we didn't see any money still, uh, that would be a very negative thing. It's really interesting because one of the, um, you're primarily talking, and I think historically we've been mainly talking about developed countries investing in developing countries. But you know, countries like China are becoming increasingly large part of overseas development assistance. Already the, their, the Chinese policy banks, their Export-Import Bank and their Chinese Development Bank provide more development finance than the World Bank and all of the regional MDBs combined. And now they're about to launch the AIB and the new development bank, the BRICS Bank, and their Silk Road, their Silk Road Fund. You know, are you concerned about the risk that all of this transitioning away towards clean energy projects is going to just be backfilled by uh, finance from developing countries that may not be as sensitized to the climate risk? And that a project that the World Bank doesn't fund because it's a new coal project and it's foregoing new coal projects then just becomes uh, you know, project number one on the, uh, on the, on, uh, for, a, for a new Chinese But that is, that is happening yeah. already. I mean, in, in, in Africa, if you visit different African countries, it's clear that the Chinese have come there with a very big purse mm -hmm. and invested in lots of things, infrastructure, energy infrastructure, transport infrastructure. Went to Botswana last year, but mm -hmm. it's also clear that it also runs into tremendous problems and also some kind of uh, resistance here and there because this kind of money often comes uh, at a price that is getting more and more visible for those in, in, mm -hmm. at, at the recipient end. So I think no matter what, that, that happens. But, but I think that should more sort of tell us in sort of the, the old west that this is not the time to sort of try to signal that we might not stand by our words or our agreement from, from Paris because I think what basically is at stake here, that's a much bigger geostrategic play. I, I, I always said if the Chinese are wise, they just have to pour in this tiny money and developing countries would say, wow, now China is moving. Where are uh, the rich countries who really created the problems in the first place? So. That's also why, in a geostrategic perspective, it is absolutely imperative in my mind that Europe, that North America, that uh, Australia, you know, many of the uh, Japan, that we are delivering on our, on our promises. Because what is behind all this is also who is going to sort of uh, lead the pack in the 21st century. And, 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 and that is, in, in many ways, uh, not a, a very... Uh, nice uh, question to, to answer, but I just think here that we will be judged by a lot of developing countries whether we are actually accountable. Mm -hmm. Can you count on us delivering what we have pledged? Thanks again to Connie for stopping by Epic. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Off the Charts. Make sure to tune in regularly with your host, Sam Ori. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including on SoundCloud and our website at epic.uchicago.edu. 
and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'm Pete Ogden.